I'm Bill Monroe, and I want to invite you to the Living Christmas Tree. I'm Jim Simons, and it's my privilege to direct the choir and orchestra at the Baptist Temple, and our Christmas tree is a wonderful musical presentation of the birth of the Savior and why He came. And admission is cans of non-perishable food items. The dates are December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and we'd love to have you join us. was in their souls for years they were in shackles that cut their hands and feet the torture of a Roman jail for preaching in the streets then suddenly the soldiers came and grabbed one of the brothers he knew death was waiting out that door Still he called out to the others We have won We have won Through the blood of Jesus We have won It will out through the ages, endure though evil rages, Christians stand courageous, we have won. Through trials and persecutions, and burning at the stake, they would not surrender God's soldiers kept their faith And like those Christian brothers Who offered up their lives We must boldly pledge to stand on As we press toward the prize Though Satan and his army against us they won't prevail no they're doomed to fail before the power of Jesus we have won we have won 
Before I begin the uh, message this morning, I want to uh, speak to you just a second in a little free mini message here, okay? One of the most significant events in Western civilization will be commemorated this coming Tuesday. It's Halloween Day, but uh, that's not the significant day, of course. 500 years ago, this Tuesday, October the seventh, or October the thirty-first, fifteen and seventeen, a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther, concerned about the corruption that he saw in the priesthood, 
the selling of indulgences where a priest could actually take money from a person and write out a paper and hand it to them that would give them the right to sin without any consequences. Uh, The excessive power of the state and the church together persecuting people. He saw all these horrible things going on. And he wrote out 95 what we call theses. They were actually principles or propositions in which he took the Bible and showed the error of the church at that time. At that time, the, there were not a whole number of churches. There were Baptist churches, by the way, during that time. They were called Anabaptists. But there were not the other denominational groups that we have today. Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses, handwritten by him, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, where he was a professor of theology at the university. And then he mailed a copy of it to the archbishop, the one in authority over him. It set off a furor that never has ceased to this day. It was not Martin Luther's intention to start a new church. His intention was to clean up what he felt were the excesses and, indult- and, and the, uh, the problems that were in the Catholic Church of that day. Before it was over, he was called before the Pope, and he was excommunicated from the church. Before it was over, he was called before Emperor Charles V, the most powerful man other than the Pope in Europe, and there he was excommunicated a second time and charged with heresy. His life was, he was sentenced to death. A price was put upon his head before it was over. He lived for over a year in the basement of a castle, afraid to even look out the door. When he was brought before the emperor and the pope, he said to them those famous words, yes, I will not back up on what I have written and what I have said. Here were his words. Here I stand. I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And his high view of Scripture, not many people today in Christianity, folks, have a high view of Scripture. We put ourselves as judges of the Scripture rather than the servants of the Scripture. It's a rare preacher in church today that has a high, high view of Scripture, as did Martin Luther. And the other thing that Martin Luther had discovered in his study of Galatians and Romans was that salvation is by grace through faith, that you cannot do anything to save yourself, and that you cannot add to your salvation, or your righteousness through human works, that God saves us through the death and through the merits and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, and that he imputes that righteousness to us upon our faith, our trust, our believing in Jesus Christ. That changed the world. My family and I this week were in Washington doing some sightseeing, and I read there in a very informative and serious piece Martin Luther was called, or has been called now, the most influential man of the second millennium. 
from 1000 AD to 2000 AD, one man stands head and shoulders above all others. He literally changed Western civilization. And though he said some ugly things about Baptists, I'm going to be kind to him today because I thank the Lord for Martin Luther who brought the Reformation into being and brought back the truth of the simple gospel that people are saved, not through one thing you can do to save yourself, but that you're saved through faith and trust and belief and reliance upon the merits of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he re-inspires me as a preacher to take a high view of Scripture. It doesn't matter. He said, if every tile on the roof becomes a devil and screams at me all the way to my trial, I'll put my fingers in my ears, I'll close my eyes, and I'll proceed on because I believe the Word of God. And you know what? If every devil around me begins to attack my faith, I hope that God will give me the kind of courage and grace that he gave to Martin Luther. And I hope the same, I pray the same for all of you here today. What a great, great man. And we celebrate what he did. This Tuesday, don't ever forget Martin Luther. Now in your Bible, Luke chapter 16, the first sermon's free today. And in Luke chapter number 16 and verse 19, we want to read a great parable or, pardon me, a great passage of Scripture. I should not have said that. Strike that from the record. It's not a parable. It, it's a story by the Lord Jesus Christ, a true story. And the message today is hell, yes. Now, you've got to get the punctuation right, or I'm, I'll be accused of profanity. The punctuation is hell, question mark, yes, exclamation point. You follow me? So I'm using it in a, in a proper sense. Stand, please, to your feet. Let's read what Jesus Christ said about hell. Luke chapter number 16 and verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came. Not moreover, the dog. <laughs> that was not his name. It was moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this place. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him, them. And he said, 
No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Thank you, and you may be seated. One day on a Navy ship, the soldiers crowded around the man that had just come on board, who was their new chaplain. And the sailors, I should call them, not soldiers, they said to the new chaplain assigned to their battleship, just one question for you, chaplain. Do you believe in hell? And the chaplain, a modern thinker, said, oh, no, I don't believe in anything like hell. And they said, well, then, chaplain, we don't need you because if there is no hell, you have no purpose here. And if there is one, we need somebody who will tell us how to avoid it. Pretty good common sense, I would say. Chaplain, if there's no hell, you can leave. We don't need you. But if there is a hell, please tell us about it so that we may not ever go to that horrible place. Bertrand Russell was one of, if not the most famous philosopher in all of America back in the middle 1900s, early and middle 1900s. He was revered for his wisdom. He was an astute thinker, a great intellectual. And Bertrand Russell said, the doctrine of hell was what made him reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And here's a quote from that man. He said, there is one serious defect to my mind in the moral character of Jesus Christ, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment, end of quote. Man, I read that. I said, how's that for hubris? Wow. Here's a man who sets himself up as the judge of Jesus Christ. Bertrand Russell was basically saying, I'm more moral than was Jesus Christ. Talk about arrogance and pride of the highest order. But you know today, I'm afraid that many Christians are embarrassed to say that they believe in hell. Everything in our culture intimidates us and would tell us that if you're in polite society and among educated people and so on, that to say that you believe in a literal hell is unsophisticated, that to say you believe in hell is unloving, that to say that you believe in hell is to be politically incorrect, Boy, I was, we were in Washington, and we went on a tour of the Capitol and a tour of the Mount Vernon and a tour of the various places there. This political correctness is an evil, evil disease. It's taken over. They spend more time talking about that than they do about the events that happened in those places. Such a sad thing. And we as Christians, whether we want to admit it or not, have been infected with this stuff. And if you're a sophisticated, educated person today, you might have a little twinge of 
Oh, I don't know if I'd want to tell everybody that I really believe in hell. They'd think that I'm not so sophisticated. I'm not as educated as I would like for them to think I am. That uh, I'm skating out on the real edge of political incorrectness to say that I believe in hell. And these misguided efforts on our part to be relevant, for people to think that we're sensitive, have silenced us, our pulpits and our mouths. And uh, we're more concerned about the feelings of people than we are the truth of what God has so clearly said in his word over and over. In fact, as I stand here right now, I might be triggering a microaggression. (laughs) Some of you might be getting uncomfortable and we have to put you in a safe space in our church somewhere. Because the pastor is simply telling you what the Bible has said for 2,000 years. If you're uncomfortable right now, you and I need to have a little talk about what we believe. Because you've bought in very deeply to what this world is teaching. Robert Ingersoll was a famous atheist who traveled the country, had his own private railroad car, became a rich man lecturing on... Christianity and why he rejected Christianity. He was sort of the Richard Dawkins of his day. And Ingersoll would sell out opera houses and auditoriums and concert halls, and people would pay good money to come and hear him give lectures on why Christianity is antiquated and out of date and no longer relevant in the world of today. And that was 100 years ago. And after one of his lectures somewhere in one of the large northern cities, an old drunk staggered up to Robert Ingersoll, and he said, Bob, I liked your lecture tonight. I liked what you said about hell, that it doesn't even exist. But Bob, I want you to be sure about that because I'm dependent on you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. Everybody depends on somebody else. Everybody bets on someone or something. The atheist bets on all those books that he read and that college professor that told him that Christianity is not valid and that God doesn't exist. Are you going to bet your eternal existence on that fellow? And then the Muslim, he bets on the accuracy and the truthfulness of, of, of Islam, doesn't he? Now, I'm betting on Jesus Christ. I'm betting on Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm betting on Jesus, and my question to you is, who are you betting on? Who are you betting on? I sure wouldn't be walking up to Bob Ingersoll and saying, I'm betting on you, Bob. I'm sure, depending on you, that there won't be a place called hell. So since I'm betting on Jesus, just what did Jesus say about hell? All right, in your Bible with me. We're going to look at the Scripture a good bit here today. The first thing I want you to know, though, is that Jesus Christ said that hell was a real place. It's a real place. And so the preacher ought to preach on hell if it's a real place, if it is a bona fide threat. You see, here's what's happened. For the last 150 years or so, theologians have only focused on one dimension of God's character. That dimension is that God is love. And everywhere you go, it doesn't matter whether it's Protestant or Catholic, 
mainline, or even today it's crept into evangelicalism, churches that claim to believe the Bible. And the idea has crept in that God is a God of love. He is so loving that he has become tolerant of sin. And so we impute to him the qualities we want him to have and fail to recognize the qualities that we don't particularly like in someone's character. And so Adrian Rogers said, we've humanized God, we've deified man, and we've air-conditioned hell. Well, I like that, don't you? We have humanized God. We brought him down to be like us. We've deified man and lifted him up to be like God. We've made a God out of man. And we've air-conditioned hell. We've kind of made it a little bit non-threatening now, so it's not as bad as those old preachers like Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and people like that who preached a lot on hell. You see, the Bible teaches, ladies and gentlemen, that God is transcendent. Big word, theological word. What does it mean, transcendent? It means he's above everyone and everything on this planet. God is not like you. Though you were made in his image, that image is so marred by sin that it's hardly recognizable. And even so, if that image was not marred, if you were like Adam, you would only be a tiny bit like God though his image is in you, because you see, God is superior. God is transcendent. God is sovereign. He is so far above us. The Bible says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his ways than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. And I want you to get a high and holy view of God. What was it that made Martin Luther unafraid to stand before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope, the two most powerful men in the world, and say, I cannot back up on what I have taught. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It was only because he believed there was a God who was so superior to the emperor and so superior to the Pope that he was first of all accountable to that God. And so he couldn't back down, even if it would have cost him his life. And today we've reduced God. We've gotten him down to where we can understand him and we can relate to him. Let me be very honest with you. I don't relate to God very well. I don't relate to God. God is not cool. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, God's not like anything or anyone that you have any comprehension about. He is the whole, holy and high one who inhabiteth eternity. He is so far superior to you and me that our little pygmy minds understand about this much of God and the rest of him spans into infinity. God is high and holy and exalted and lifted up. And you're not hearing that today and you feel uncomfortable right now with me talking like that because I'm so in your face about it. But who are you going to depend on? Who are you depending on? I'm depending on him. I don't have to understand him to submit to him and to be his child and his servant. I don't have to comprehend everything about him before I choose for him because he's God. 
Can I prove to you from Scripture what I've just been saying? It's the book of Psalms, number 50. Here's a very unfamiliar phrase. I've never heard it preached on. I've never heard it quoted. And then I found it, and I thought, oh, what a phrase. Psalm number 50 and verse 21. And I'm not even going to read the whole verse. I'm going to read the relevant and pertinent part of it. Psalm 50 and 21. God is speaking, and he says, you thought that I was altogether such a one as thyself. He's rebuking them. He says, look, you thought I was like you. You thought I was like you, and I'm not like you. There's nothing about God that's like me, and I only resemble him a tiny, tiny bit. You made a mistake. You thought I was like you. Don't ever impute to God what you think God ought to be. The only real revelation of God, we find it in the Scriptures and in nature itself. Now, Jesus often spoke about hell. And when he did, he he talked about it as a real place. 13% of the verses that Jesus spoke in all the Gospels, about 13% of them deal with the subjects of eternal judgment and hell. He used basically, or the Bible uses, three words to describe hell. Matthew 5 and 30, he used the word Gehenna, and is translated in your Bible, hell. Sometimes it's translated hellfire. What was Gehenna? Gehenna was the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem in the brook Kidron. I've actually been there. It no longer is the garbage dump, but in those days it was. And all the people would bring their garbage, and they would dump it over the cliff, and it would go down in there, and then after a while it would smolder. It would catch fire through spontaneous combustion, and it would smolder and burn, and smoke would come up out of there, and it was a a horrible stench. It was was about as unpleasant a place as the Lord could use to describe hell. And so he calls it, hell or hell fire, 11 times in the Scripture. In Revelation chapter 20, the Bible describes hell using the word Hades, which was the location of wicked people who had died and were awaiting the great white throne judgment before Almighty God. It was like a holding tank at the jail where people were restrained and people were waiting for their day of sentencing. And then in 2 Timothy, or pardon me, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, you find the word hell, and it's rendered hell there, but it's Tartarus. And it describes the deepest abyss of the earth and Hades, the place where the evil spirits, the demon spirits that rebel with Satan are being held captive until the day of a permanent lake of fire. Look with me, if you will, here in Luke again, in chapter 16, in our passage that we're studying this morning. And in Luke chapter 16 and verse 28, Jesus uses the word place. Verse number 28, I have five brethren, said the, uh, the rich man. And he said, I wish that people would testify to them lest they come into this place of torture. And you go back down, and he uses it a second time there in the passage. Twice he uses the word place. The word he used in the Greek was topos. 
It means a real place, a specific place. So my point that I'm making to you is that Jesus said that hell was not a state of mind. It was not an imaginary uh, existence, that it was a real place. He used the same word, for example, to describe heaven. In John 14 and 1, he says, I go to prepare a place, a real place for you. See, if you make hell into an imaginary state and a state of mind, then of course, if you do that, then you got to make heaven into that. So you take away the reality of heaven because he used the same word to describe both heaven and hell as a real and genuine place. So Jesus said hell was real. It was a real place. It wasn't a figment of imagination. It wasn't something God made up to scare people. It's a reality. Now, I'm depending on what Jesus said. Who are you going to depend on about that? Do you believe this or do you believe it or do you not believe it? Number two, Jesus said it was a place of suffering. Look in verse 23. Verse 23 of Luke 16. In hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torments. Torments, a place of suffering, of course. In verse number 24, the rich man says, I'm tormented in this flame. Again, it's a real place, of, a place of suffering. Mark chapter 9 and verse 48, Jesus refers to it in these words. He says it's a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. People grind their teeth there. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11, it says, The smoke of their torment ascendeth upward forever and ever. Graphic language to describe a place of suffering. Verse number 24 says, The rich man says, I'm tormented in this flame. In this flame. So are the flames real? Well, you know, there are many people, there's a division even among good people solid theologians here. Many have believed that hell was real, but that the fire, the flame that Jesus uses there is symbolic. Among them was Martin Luther and John Calvin and Francis Schaeffer and a number of people, J.I. Packer, famous theologian of our own day. They believed, yes, we believe in a very real hell, just like the Bible teaches, but we believe the flame is symbolic. And why did they believe that? Because they're otherwise very conservative theologians. And they said, well, if it were literal fire, then it wouldn't be dark there. So it must be symbolic. That was their rationale. Now, we since have discovered that there are certain forms of fire which give off almost no light. And I personally believe in the literal interpretation unless it's obviously symbolic and it's not there. But I will say this. Your salvation doesn't depend on whether or not you believe that hell, the fire in hell is literal or figurative. But I will tell you this, if it's symbolic, it might even be worse than the symbol for which it stands. So any way you cut it, you don't want to go there. You don't want to risk that. You don't want anybody you know. You don't want anybody that you love or care one thing about to have any chance of missing heaven and going here. Now, of course, what many people don't understand is that hell, the Bible teaches that hell is not the same for everybody. You don't take the average person who dies from Florence, South Carolina, and went through life and was a pretty ordinary guy, but he just rejected Jesus Christ. 
it would not, God would not be just then to put him in the same place of punishment with Adolf Hitler, who killed six million of his people. That would not be justice, would it? The one thing we know about God is that God is just, and we know that God is righteous, and we know that God is holy. And if he, if he were to treat everybody the same, then he wouldn't be holy or righteous or just at all. And in the Bible, for example, in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, in verse 12 and 13, twice it says that people will be judged according to their works, according to their works. That's the key phrase, according to their works. And that then their judgment will be according to what they have done upon this earth. So that involves degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus said, thirdly, that hell lasts forever. The popular view today among a lot of the cool theologians is they believe in annihilation. Oh, we're not prepared to say that, there's, that hell is, uh, that we don't believe in hell. However, we believe that people go there and they're burned up, they're consumed, and they're gone forever. They're annihilated. That's not what Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 36, these shall go away unto everlasting punishment. The word translated everlasting, there's the same word that's translated eternal in the Bible over and over. In Revelation 20 and 10, it says, The devil was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. And in multiple other passages, the Scripture is very clear. That hell is not a temporary punishment. It doesn't lead to annihilation. It is an eternal and everlasting form of punishment. Jesus said that hell lasts forever. Let me review what I've said. Jesus said that hell is a real place. He said that hell is a place of suffering. He said that hell lasts forever. Now, there are people that still object to it in spite of what Jesus said about it. And let me give you just a couple, the most outstanding of those objections. One is the belief of what is called universalism. Universalism has swept over Protestant Christianity and uh, Roman Catholic the- uh, theology also. And it's the idea that everyone will eventually go to heaven. That though some people, if you're a Catholic, they will go to purgatory and their sins will be burned out over a period of time. And in, among Christian, uh, Protestants and, and evangelical Christians, the idea that, well, God is just so loving and so good that everybody's going to end up in, 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 in heaven somehow. And they don't have a real clear explanation for how, but that he is. I go to the cross, which is where we have to go for everything in our theology. And as I go to the cross, I see the Son of God, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, and all the sins of all the world piled upon his shoulders, as it were. Jesus Christ cries out into the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question, if God, the Father, would turn his back on 
and abandon and forsake his own son because his own son was bearing sin. Why then would I think he would not forsake and abandon me if I go into eternity unredeemed, unrepentant, rebellious, and unbelieving against the gospel that he provided? Why would I think he would think more of me than he thought of his own son? You see, God's holy character demands, his holy character demands that every sin be punished. And when I reject the fact that Jesus Christ bore my sins, then I'm left with my sins upon me. They're my responsibility and I must make payment for them. Our willingness to tolerate sin as human beings doesn't spring from our love for people. It springs from our own unrighteousness. That because we know we are tainted, we cannot believe that God would truly punish us like he did until we go to the Scripture and accept its authority. And the other reason people refuse to believe in the doctrine of hell, they believe that hell is too severe a punishment, that unbelief in Jesus Christ, the fact that I reject what Jesus Christ, who he is and what he taught, I reject his sacrifice for me on the cross. An eternal punishment in hell just seems to be too much punishment for that degree of sin that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, that unbelief is, is, is wrong. It's a sinful thing, but it, it certainly doesn't warrant eternal punishment, does it? Well, I turn to my Bible, the book of Hebrews. Would you like to turn there with me? Chapter number 10 in God's Word, the book of Hebrews. And we'll look at that argument in the light of Scripture. The argument is, how could unbelief warrant or deserve an eternal punishment? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Of how much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant, the blood that Christ shed on the cross for that person's sins, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despot. The word despot, you could translate that in our modern world as an insult. We have insulted the Spirit of grace. Get the essence of the book verse. He is saying that to reject Jesus Christ is to trod underfoot the blood that he shed on the cross for us, to treat that blood as if it's an unholy, valueless substance, and then to insult the Spirit of grace, meaning the Holy Spirit of God who comes and convicts me of my sins. Ladies and gentlemen, the most serious thing you can do in this life, the most serious offense against Almighty God is that you would reject Jesus Christ. 
God has forgiven murderers of their sins, and they've testified to his forgiveness, and he testified to their forgiveness in the scriptures. For example, David, we know, is in heaven, and he was a murderer because God forgave him of that. We know that God will, will forgive an adulterer or an adulteress, a prostitute, a pornography. God will forgive any sin. You can't think of a sin that God will not forgive except one. And that is when you trample, when you walk upon the blood of Jesus Christ, and when the Holy Spirit comes and beckons you to trust Christ as your Savior, you insult him by saying, no, I want nothing to do with it. Why do I preach a sermon like this? Very, very somber, huh? I probably ought to preach on it more than I do. I just don't like to preach on it. I'd rather stand there and you say, oh, preacher, I enjoyed the message. You won't t- I hope you don't tell me that today. It was not my intent. And yet I know that when people no longer fear God, you get what you read about in the newspaper today. You know the problem in America? We don't fear God. We don't fear hell. We don't fear anything. We are out for one thing. We want to please ourselves. And you get what we have in our culture. Evil that's unreal. They're scraping the top off of Hollywood right now. I heard somebody say, the other day that they called uh, Washington, D.C. the swamp. He said, that is an insult to every good swamp in America. (laughs) That Washington is not a swamp. Washington is a cesspool. Washington is a septic tank. And it smells in the nostrils of God. And if the preachers had more hell fire in the pulpit, we might have less hell in the streets. A lot of it ought to be laid at the foot of the church in America today. Clayton Simmons was speaking the other day in staff meeting. He said, when I was a business executive in the life insurance business in Raleigh, North Carolina, they invited me to go hear this preacher. And he's ended up being my good friend for life, Larry Upchurch. He said, man, he let us hold it on some hellfire and brimstone preaching. First time I walked in there, and I said, I'll never go back again. And he said, next Saturday, there was this little voice, and said, you need what that guy talked about. So he said, I went back one more time, and I got madder. I walked out and said, I'll never go back there again. And the next week, I'm sitting in that pew. You see, if people come and say, oh, the preacher made me feel so good. And the preacher there, I feel so comfortable, and I just like it. I just think <laughs> I feel so good when he gets up there and tells us about how much he loves it. Oh, blah, 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 blah. But I can't do that and be true to this. Now, I'm not going to preach on hell next Sunday. Or maybe I might. (laughs) I'll see how this works. But God didn't call the preacher to make you like him. 
And God didn't call the preacher to just comfort you, though we sung about, child of God, do not fear. But God called the preacher to tell you the truth from his word, his word that is the final authority in this universe. And so I must do it. I must do it. Christian, if you believe what I've just preached on today, you'll be a good soldier in the Andrew Army. What else would give me more motivation to witness and share the gospel of Christ than I don't want anybody to go to this horrible place? And I'm motivated to tell people of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know what makes the good news good news? is the fact that we believe there's this horrible alternative. And Senator, if you're here today and you're not saved, you better be sure you're right if you reject Jesus Christ. You better be sure that those books you read and that professor you listen to and that program you watched and that movie that you saw, you just better be sure that it's not science fiction. You better make sure who you're depending on. I'm depending on Jesus Christ. The drunk to anger Saul said, Bob, you better be right. I'm sure counting on you. I'm saying, Jesus, you better be right. I'm counting on you. That's the one I'm counting on today. And so, Santa, run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Don't wait one day. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.